What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. Today, we're going to be covering probably the most crazy, evil Uber driver you've ever heard of. Um, he was driving to the median. He was driving like 75 miles an hour down West Main. It literally took over mind and body. When a guy just shot some people in the parking lot. I told the girls, run no matter what. You run and do not come back. I'm at the um, Kalamazoo Cracker Road, and there's been gunshots in a, in a car. There's gunshots in a car? I'm not a killer, I, and, I, I, and I know that I have killed. I did not set out that day to premeditate to do anything like that at all. Would I do it all over again? Hell yeah, I'd do it again. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. I'm your host, Josh, and I'm joined in the studio by the boys yet again, Austin. Hey, man. What's up? What's up, man? And Daniel. How's it going, man? Good. How are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Yeah, back from a long break here. Yeah, we're back from our holiday break, and sorry to kind of disappear on you for a little while. I realized we forgot to mention in that episode before our last one of the year that we were just taking on for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, I just kind of assumed that everybody remembered from last year, but then I realized we had a lot of growth this past year. And so there's a lot of, a lot of you that are new probably had no idea that we take a a two week holiday break at the end of the year, but we are back from that for another year of lights out. I think we're entering year number three, four. Uh, Oh yeah. Is it four now? I think think it's it's four. four. Is it year? I think it started 2020. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely did start 2020. And so, I know, like, everyone probably thinks that we're just trapped in this room constantly. Like, the camera goes out. Like we're just, like, we're just stay in stasis. Here. Yeah. But, yeah, we have friends and family back, you know, at home. And I got a nice trip back to Michigan, which was nice. You which know. is also the uh, location for our episode today. Yeah, we'll be in Kalamazoo today, uh, which is across, kind of across the state from me. But I've been there a few times uh, got some great beer over there it's a college town i used to play back when i was in a band we played a show or two out that way too which is yeah, cool. you miss those days some days i do some days i'm like damn i maybe i didn't realize how like easy going and fun it was but it, it was also a lot of work being in a band you know you can't really slack off as much as you think you could yeah or you go nowhere yeah I guess you stuck. could slack. A lot of bands slack off and then they just they end. fade away. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we're we're back for another great year for you guys. I mean, we have so much planned this year. So many new ideas we're bringing to the table and new episodes and been brainstorming hard about some other types of content we can do here at Lights Out and potentially kind of get out of this 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 room we're trapped in for a little bit and explore the world and see some so you see some sites you know that might might fit into the lights out universe but today we're going to be covering a probably the most crazy evil uber driver you've ever heard of and this this case takes place back when uber first launched because when you hear what happens you're like how the hell did uber not have a way to stop this man 
or or stop people from getting in the car with this guy. Because this guy just goes on a violent rampage for apparently no reason. I mean, we're still scratching our heads as to why this man, Jason Dalton, went on this violent shooting spree. For several hours, too. Yeah, hours on end. And it seems premeditated, but it's just, it's really hard to wrap your head around why. Why did he do this? And ultimately, he likes to blame Uber and claim it's a demonic app. Which may, maybe I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I've been on a few Uber rides. I'm like, this is kind of, it's kind of from hell, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, this case, I don't know. It's a big question mark for me. I don't know. Maybe going through it with you, I might unlock something in this case. But yeah, it's a it's a big head scratcher, and it's it's horrific. Um, yeah, it's very very tragic, very sad uh, for those the victims of of this guy. Because it's just, it's so unnecessary and it should have been stopped way before it got as bad as it did. And it, it could have been stopped, in my opinion. We'll, we'll see when we dig into it, but I think there could have been definitely ways to, to put it into this guy's down a little bit. Yeah. But before we dive into the, the horrific case of Jason Dalton, I did want to remind everybody that there are a few hoodies left of that lights out skeleton hoodie, the puff print on the front, super warm, you know, with the weather being cold here in Colorado, it's been below freezing and I think it's gonna be below freezing all week. I know I came, I, I left, it was like 50 degrees outside sunny and I came back chilly and snowy. That's kind of how January goes here. I feel like January, February are like our coldest, snowiest months here in Colorado. So it's been been pretty cold i was just in arizona and arizona was cold i was going there for this warm sunshine and i was like oh i'm gonna go swimming and it was like 50s you got, high ripped, 40s. You got ripped off i was kind of pissed arizona is supposed to be like melting tires I was going to the desert and, and super hot yeah, yeah people are like, like cooking hot. eggs on the yeah. cars and stuff i'm like this is not what i what i came for although it was beautiful weather i mean it was cool outside got to go outside do some fun stuff and Luckily, they heat their pools there, which is good. So you still got oh, to go nice. swimming. They're like, on the, on the rare chance we'll need to heat this pool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it was, a, it was a good time. But go check out those hoodies while they're available. I think it's only XL and 2XL right now. There's also the Lights Out hoodie, which is the same design uh, that Austin's actually wearing today uh, from a previous collection. But yeah, there's just a few items left, and we are working on some new stuff too. We're very excited to unveil in the coming months but it's a great way to support the show you know I, I put everything that the merch makes back into the production of the show into projects that we do um and you know just keep bringing bringing good stuff for you guys but let's go ahead and jump in to jason brian dalton so jason dalton he grew up in greenfield indiana and then he later moved into kalamazoo michigan during his teenage years Kalamazoo is the home of Western Michigan University and one of Michigan's favorite breweries, Bell's. I'm a big fan. I mean, I'm not into craft beer as much as I used to be, but yeah, you you can still find it out here. Two Hearted. Oh, really? On. Yeah. If I'll I, ever, try some. if I ever get a little homesick, I'll head up the store and go crack a Bell's or something. <laughs> yeah. Kalamazoo, in, you know, a lot of towns like to claim they're a safe town. True. Every town does. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, we're safe. Nothing ever... Nothing bad ever happens here, but 
Kalamazoo, for the most part, is a safe town. It's a great place to raise a family. You know, it's kind of that type of atmosphere. There's tons of places to hang out, live music, all that good stuff. But at Comstock High School, Jason was the co-captain of his football team, and he got good grades. And to his friends, Jason was easygoing and generally avoided confrontation. His two favorite hobbies were working on cars and collecting guns. He later went to Kalamazoo Community College and graduated in December 1992 with an associate's degree in law enforcement, which is kind of odd, uh, especially um, as these events roll out. But he passed his law enforcement exams, but decided not to enroll in the school's police academy program. According to an old friend, Jason had tried to become an officer in the surrounding towns, but for whatever reason, he never did. And I'm curious as to why. Yeah. I don't know if it was like physically, maybe he struggled with some, oh, of the, yeah, some the physical exams, and maybe some limitations there, or you know, why go through all that, you know, education and schooling to not ultimately become a law enforcement officer. Right. So Jason ended up moving to Laramie, Wyoming in order to attend an automotive trade school called WyoTech so he could learn auto body work. He later went on to work in a BMW office in New Jersey, and from there he worked as an auto body mechanic and later an insurance adjuster. But he eventually found his way back to Kalamazoo. He ended up meeting and marrying his wife, Carol, in 1995, and fast forward to 2016, Jason is 45 years old, and he and his wife had two kids together, aged 10 and 15 years old. His friends knew him as a family man, and on Facebook, he often posted pictures of his family and summer spent out on the lake. There was one particular incident that happened where someone broke into his garage one night, and the thief stole a handful of very expensive tools and when Jason discovered that he had been robbed the next morning, his, his gun collection started growing from that point on, to put it simply. So by 2016, a year after this robbery took place, he had grown his gun collection to 16 different types of weapons, including pistols, rifles, and shotguns. By 2016, Jason's wife noticed that he had been acting a bit depressed some days. It wasn't really worrisome or strange, but no one really knew what was going on with him. Around this time, ride-sharing services like Uber had become extremely popular. I mean, we all remember when Uber came out. It was like so, so big. Yeah, and I never even really took cabs before, but all of a sudden we were all using the I never took cabs either. Yeah. I just was always sketched out by cabs. I don't know why. Same. Well, they were, I don't know. They always smelled like cigarettes. Yeah. How many people have puked back here? I don't know. I was always a little grossed out. So in 2014, Uber expanded into the Kalamazoo area, which was smart for them because there's tons of college students who need rides. And I mean, that's what better place to start a ride sharing service in than college towns. So Jason signed up to be a driver in order to make some extra money on the side. And the goal for him was to save up enough money for his family so that they could go on a trip to Disney World. He passed the background checks and he didn't have any criminal activity in his record or anything like that, completely clean. And it was very soon after this that he began picking up riders in his silver Chevy Equinox. And for two weeks, Jason's driver rating was great, and the side gig was going well. February 20th, 2016 was just like any other Saturday. Jason met up with a friend and checked out a few gun stores around town. And this was something that he did fairly often with his buddies. You know, it was just guns were his hobbies, so that's what he did. That whole afternoon, Jason seemed to be in a good mood. At one of the stores, he bought a new gun holster and a jacket with a holster sewn into it. The employees of the gun store claimed he was smiling, joking, and even laughing while talking with the manager and other employees. 
He then told them he was going to, quote, enjoy the weather. It was the first sunny day that Kalamazoo had seen in a long while. And Austin knows firsthand, you don't see the sun that often in Michigan. No, you do not. I was just uh, back there for about two weeks, and I think I saw the sun for about three hours. Tops, that was about it. <laughs> it was yeah. just dark gray. I know. I th- right when the sun broke through the clouds, I was like, Jerry, we're going Get on outside. Walk. Let's yeah. go. Everybody emerges from it's, their houses and goes outside. Exactly. So I would expect there's definite like seasonal depression there. Oh, hundred percent. People are just kind of are people grouchy and moody. Yeah, yeah. During and, the winter, and you won't really see many people too, unless if you're inviting them over. Like there's an actual maybe event to go to, but yeah, people. It's also it's so cold. Everyone like on the street, no conversations because no one wants to stop and say hi. So everyone's just like bundled head up and down, like where it, you got to go, right? Interesting. And, yeah, it's a dark, dark place. Uh, that's why there's also a lot of speaking of beer, just a little, you just drink. That's in like the Midwest. What yeah. you do through the winter, so you just hole up and and get loaded. Sounds fun. <laughs> so after the gun store visit. He and his friends parted ways, and later in the afternoon, Jason decided to pick up a few passengers to make some money. At 4.21 p.m., he got a ping for his first ride. His name was Matt Mellon. Matt had left his car at a friend's house the night before, so his plan was to get his car and drive home. When he approached the Uber, Matt noticed a large German Shepherd in the back seat of Jason's Equinox. This was the Dalton's family dog, Mia. So I've never... I've never approached an uber for a ride and there have been a dog in the back seat no that's i i want to say it's a red flag but it's also like uber had just been introduced to the area so that's kind of fast and loose out there there's probably not as True. strict rules for the drivers or the passengers um so maybe that's what was going on he just like didn't know or something i don't know yeah i'd be worried like is this dog friendly like right am i good to get so in the german car? shepherds those yeah. are big dogs that's a man stopper right there yeah. so i i'm sure matt was like okay this is weird but you know i guess i'll get in the front seat and i mean what else are you gonna do like then cancel it and then the annoying like canceling of ubers and like getting charged and yep like i hate that uber does that like yeah. that you can't just cancel i think you can cancel for free in a certain amount of time but it has to be quick if they're already there though yeah you'll get charged and then what you're gonna wait around another right, like 10 again. minutes so matt just decided to hop in sit in the front seat and besides the dog it was a typical drive but during the ride jason's phone rang it was jason's son he answered and he put it on speakerphone that's always lovely when uber drivers do that but matt was only partially listening to the conversation his son asked if he was coming home for dinner that night when out of nowhere, Jason flew into a rage. It was at that moment that he stepped on the gas pedal and accelerated up to 65 to 75 miles per hour in a residential zone. So we're talking neighborhood. Flying down the street. He ended up driving over a median, sideswiping a car, and driving through a section of woods. That would be terrifying. Yeah, you can't get out too. You can jump, just fast. jump while the car's going and yeah. possibly injure or kill yourself. So Matt's yelling at Jason, like, stop the car. I want to get out of the car. But Jason kept saying, well, Matt, you need a ride still. Like, I'm, I'm getting you to where you want to go. Even though they had already passed his drop-off point, Jason kept driving at high speeds. Meanwhile, Matt desperately kept pointing out houses they were passing. 
saying that this was his destination and that he desperately wanted to get out of the car. He eventually convinced Jason that they needed to stop. A woman named Casey Black witnessed the Chevy Equinox slamming on the brakes in the middle of the street and Matt stumbling out of the car. Casey and Matt then called emergency services around the same time, and after being transferred twice, Matt was able to report what had happened. Let's listen to Matt's 911 call. 911? Hi. Um, I'd like to report an erratic driver. Where? Um, I was just in the car with him. He was my Uber driver, and when we, he was weaving, weaving in and out of lanes, he sideswiped the car on West Main Hill. Um, he was driving to the median. He was driving like 75 miles an hour down West Main. I got his license plate number when I jumped out of the car. What's the plate, please? Okay, what kind of car is it? It was like a Chevy Equinox. What color? Uh, silver. He had a dog in the back seat. He was, he was my Uber driver. Like I, I had to get a ride back to pick up my car from last night. Mm -hmm. And on my way to my friend's house, like it started off normal, and then all of a sudden he just started driving super crazy. Okay. Did you want to talk to an officer, or you just want me to put out an alert over the radio? I wanted to just, I just wanted to report it because I don't want someone sure. to get hurt. I, I understand I what you're saying, but I need to know if you want to talk to an officer, or if you want me to have an officer, just have the officers just be on the lookout for it. I just want be on the lookout. And okay, thank you. Report to know. Uber because I don't think he, he needs to be picking Okay, you're going to have to do that, sir, not us. Alright, I can do that. Thank you. Uh, wow. The attitude yeah, is kind of off-putting. It's like this, I don't know, who's just, it's not like this guy's just casually calling uh, emergency services. He clearly just went through something and then she's just trying to cut him off and be like, well, do you want to just put a do you want him on lookout or do you want him to come out there? And I was like, I don't know. You're the, you're the one who works for the emergency services. Like you right. should be handling this situation. Why is it my job to make these decisions for you? Right. Somebody's driving erratically in a residential zone at 65 to 75 miles an hour. I think you should probably send an officer out yeah. to, to stop this guy. Right. So very strange response from that. And that was also after he had already been transferred because i guess there was like a jurisdictional thing so it seems like they were overloaded with calls or something like right that. And she was like having one of those days yeah i guess but but in hindsight i wonder how she feels because yeah. i mean had she taken more charge and called uber i mean probably should call uber and, and, and again this is in the early days so maybe it was just kind of you know nobody really had an idea of like how to handle these situations and I'm sure there probably wasn't any training to, hey, if one of these ride-sharing things goes haywire, like call the ride-sharing company and make sure that you let them know what's going on so that they can disable the driver's app so he doesn't pick up any more people. Right. And the fact that he's like, I don't want anybody to get hurt, like that, that should also signal to the dispatcher, like, I, hey, this is serious. I'm really concerned about this individual. I almost got hurt on this ride, let alone the poor dog that's in the back getting thrown around and true yeah i didn't like, even think about that guys getting slammy on his brakes and you have a german shepherd in the back seat of a small vehicle like that dog slamming it like right that dog could possibly oh, get hurt poor too. dog i didn't even think about that yeah i don't know very frustrating phone call though all in all so yeah after that phone call matt then claimed he tried to contact uber to let them know that jason was a danger 
and then he needed to be deactivated as a driver immediately, right? That seems like the, no the reasonable response here. But the problem was is that Uber did not have a 24-7 incident response team. They claimed that they did have it, though, and I tried to find an older version of Uber to, to look into this, but I couldn't really find it. Apparently, though, they claimed 24-7 incident response team is available, but obviously Matt tried to contact them. He'd been trying to reach them. He couldn't get through. Which you should be able to just contact their customer service number and there'd be an option to report an emergency. emergency. So yeah. depending on, we don't know you know, what those calls sounded like or anything, but I have a really hard time believing that Uber's legal team would have ever allowed this service to launch without this in place. So my guess is that there was something, it just wasn't prevalent enough for the average person to find it real easily like it should have been in the app at the press of a button yeah not like oh we have this number hidden at the bottom of our website page and like i mean you got to think too matt's probably kind of distraught he just went through this kind of traumatic experience and he's probably just like maybe not even thinking clearly so he's just trying to hurry and, and find this number and it's it shouldn't be hard to find. No, right? it yeah, should be a button be you press. Easy. And yeah. I think what we're seeing here in a lot of this is like, since Uber is so new, you know, they didn't have like the GPS tracking like they do today to make sure everybody's safe because there were those cases where, you know, people were getting picked up and then never seen again. So I think what we're seeing here is Uber's, they didn't get ahead of the problems. They were basically like, not that they were going to let the problems happen, but basically the problems are going to occur and we'll mitigate it afterwards, after the fact. So not a great move here. And they were so frustrated. Matt went to his girlfriend. He's like, what should we do? I called the police. I tried to contact Uber emergency services. We're not getting through. So ended up Matt's girlfriend posted to Facebook, hoping that people around Kalamazoo would see. She's warning people to be on the lookout for this Uber driver in a Chevy Equinox. which. Smart move, yeah. In my opinion, like at the very least, and Facebook then especially was much bigger than it it is now, especially with um, you know us uh, millennials. I mean, I'm still a Facebook user, but I deleted mine. A few did years. you? Yeah, I feel like I'm the only one that still uses Facebook. I, know. I there, love Facebook. There was a time, I probably circa 2014. I mean, everybody was on there, but yeah, now you're like, no, nope. yeah. I think mine was I probably about four years ago. Oh wow, yeah. And then uh, it was hard, though, because I'm like, oh, I got to stay in touch with everyone. But nah, I like, nah. wiped it. If you want to contact me, you can find a way. Wow. All right. Yeah. But Facebook, I mean, even to this day, is a lot of people, I mean, especially when it comes to true crime, a lot of, uh, I mean, we work with a lot of families who use utilize Facebook to raise awareness. It's still, I mean, I think it's still the number, the largest user base for a social yep. media network. Yep. Um, worldwide worldwide for sure, so it's a great yeah. place to still network and and get the word out for for things like this and so in my opinion that was a smart move by her yeah and so i i'm proud of them that they didn't just stop there you know so they, they, they did what they did yeah uh and meanwhile several other witnesses called in 911 and reported the chevy equinox driving erratically through town so this everything's becoming aware here after Jason dropped Matt off, he returned home, drank a glass of water, retrieved his Glock 19, which is a 9mm handgun, and strapped on his son's bulletproof vest. 
His son had gotten the vest from the Explorer program with the Kalamazoo County Sheriff's Office. It was formerly used by Michigan State Police, so it sounds like his son was interested in yeah, becoming a police officer yeah. the same way that his father once That's was. That's very interesting. Jason also put on the jacket he had just bought with the holster sewn to the inside. Then he got back in the car and activated his Uber profile again to pick up more passengers. Now, this was around 5.40 p.m. when the next passenger requested a ride. Uber hadn't deactivated Jason as a driver since Matt couldn't reach their emergency contact, so Jason went on to try and pick up a 15-year-old named Macy at an apartment complex called The Meadows. This is very uh, Midwest-esque apartment complex here. The apartment complex had several parking lots in between the long stretches of buildings where many families lived. And that day, like we were saying before, it was a surprisingly nice day for Michigan winter weather. And the sun was out, the snow was melting. Everyone comes out of the woodwork. We've been holed up for a while here. So few kids could even be seen riding on their bikes. Everyone's trying to get outside. So when Jason arrived at the apartments, he claimed he couldn't find Macy. He called her and accused her of giving him wrong directions. Frustrated, he hung up on her mid-conversation. Macy then sent a few text messages or messaging through the Uber app. I'm not really sure, but she asked if he was close, but she wasn't getting a response. Jason, meanwhile, kept driving around the complex, still looking for her, and he ended up coming across Tiana Carruthers. Tiana had just finished exercising at home, and her daughter had a few friends over. The five girls, including her daughter, wanted to go over to another friend's house, so Tiana offered to walk with them. As they crossed the street, Jason pulled up next to them in his car, and he asked Tiana if she was Macy. And I think this is also a time where now they really emphasize having profile pictures for the riders. I think this was pre-profile pictures. I think they did have profile picture for Jason, but so he's just confused. He doesn't know who he's looking for. He starts accusing Tiana that she's Macy, um, but she's like, clearly, no, I'm not. It's not me. So after arguing about it, Jason's getting frustrated. He accelerates down the street and then he turns his car around and he heads straight towards Tiana. He then pulled out his pistol and pointed it at her through the car window. When Tiana saw the firearm, she immediately jumped between Jason and the young girls and began shielding them. And she told them to just run as fast as they could. Jason ended up shooting a total of 15 times and he hit Tiana four times in the liver, both legs, and her arm. Jason then sped off in the car, leaving the apartment complex. Neighbors who heard the gunshots and ran outside found Tiana on the ground. She was still alive and all she kept repeating, she just wanted to know if the girls were safe. And here's the audio from a 911 call made by one of the neighbors. Okay, so female's down, she's been shot. Don't move, don't move. Okay, where's the person that shot her? I don't know, the, the, the car sped off, please. Okay, ma'am, we're gonna get the people going there, okay? I just need you to stay on the phone so I can get further, okay? Okay, yep, 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 yep. Somebody is practicing out here. Please don't move. Please don't move. They coming, okay? Please don't move. We got the kids. Please don't move. Just stay there. Okay, we'll get them. You just calm down. Don't, don't move. 
we got them. We got them. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's crazy. You can hear her there. I mean, imagine being shot four times and she just still honed in on, like, are the children safe? Are the children safe? Incredibly brave, man. So, luckily, all the children were safe, too. And Tiana was transported to the hospital once emergency services arrived. She ended up surviving the gunshot wounds after multiple surgeries. Her arm had reconstruction surgery. Both her femurs were broken and her liver had also been hit. After the injuries, she couldn't walk and she had to undergo years of treatment and rehabilitation. After recovery, Tiana later became a motivational speaker. And here's an interview with her after the fact talking about her experience. I told the girls, run no matter what. You run and do not come back. I tried to get under a car, but then when I realized, if I just keep moving, if I just keep moving, if I just keep moving, that he just continue to shoot. So I lay there and I pretended that I was dead. And I just kept telling myself, God, you're gonna make it. You have no other choice. You're gonna make it. And I just kept telling myself, I just hope the children are okay. Lord, please, I can never forget myself. Just make sure that they're okay. You physically blocked some of those bullets from where those kids were going. Yes. And one of those children was hurt. I don't think I could bear a child losing their life. Would I do it all over again? Hell yeah, I'd do it again. Wow. Hell yeah. That's so inspirational, man. Seriously. After the first shooting, dozens of phone calls were made to emergency services now. And with the previous reports of an erratic driver in a silver Chevy Equinox, and now a shooter with the same vehicle description, police started to connect the dots. The deranged driver was now obviously also the shooter at this scene. So after the shooting at the Meadows, dispatchers ended up calling Matt Mellon back for more information on his Uber driver because they didn't take that information before. God. So here's delayed everything. Yeah, seriously. So here's that phone call. Hi, my name is Tammy. I'm calling from public safety. Did you call earlier about the Uber driver? Yeah, yeah. He picked me up from my house. Can you give me a description of him? Um, he had a uh black glasses. Uh, Mid forties, white male, um, kind of salt and pepper hair, goatee, I believe, or maybe some facial hair. I know he had facial hair. I can't remember if it was a beard or. Was he was he um, overweight? Yep, he had a black dog in his back seat. So he was he- a heavy build. Yep, heavier built. Did you notice if he had freckles or pock marks on his face? Uh, I did not. Um, I was sitting in the front seat, but. I was honestly like staring at the road, you know, I, it was, it was nuts. I mean, all, once, once we hit like Monroe Street over there by West Main, in front of Henderson Castle, he just started hammering gas pedal and was pulling out in front of everyone and... He didn't notice. It just seems like at the very least that initial 911 call, the dispatcher should have at least gotten that description because they would have had the information already on deck. 
and could have connected the dots far sooner than they did. Yeah. So much like Uber, we're seeing this mitigated after the fact rather than people trying to get ahead of the problem. Matt then sent in a screenshot of Jason's Uber profile picture along with his name. Around 5.45, Jason's Uber account was still active. After speeding away from the crime scene, he ran a red light and sideswiped the car of a man who was going to get ice cream. The driver called 911 to report the accident, and now police knew they were specifically looking for a silver Chevy Equinox with damage to the front side of the vehicle. After the hit and run, Jason knew his car would stick out like a sore thumb, so he made a phone call to his wife. He asked her to meet him at his parents' house in Cooper Township because he needed her car. When she asked him why, he said that he was attacked and shot at by rival taxi drivers. Which, isn't that wild? That's a wild story to tell, but apparently his wife believed him and they met up at his parents' house. When Jason arrived, he went inside and retrieved a Taurus 9mm handgun. He forced the gun into his wife's waistband and told her that it wouldn't be safe to go home without a firearm. He also told her to stay home from work and keep the kids home from school on Monday, which I can only imagine what his wife was saying. She's probably like, what is going on here? I would be in shock if my significant other was just doing this and saying these things. I wouldn't even know what to do, really. When she asked what was going on, he said he wouldn't tell her, but he said if she watched the news that night, she would understand. So that's a very critical statement that he makes there, because to me, that tells, that tells me that he's planning what he's about to do next. Yeah, I'm going to do something. I will be on the news. I mean, it's a, li- it's a little ambiguous, sure, but clearly if we were talking about firearms and he's switching cars and he's heading out to go do something and he's going to be on the news later. He's consciously adjusting to the situation at hand as well. It's not just like somebody who would be completely out of their mind likely wouldn't have the mental capacity at this point to then go switch vehicles and switch weapons and completely switch up what they're doing. Yeah. So that's definitely important to keep in mind as we go further. But he also said they probably wouldn't mention him by name, but she would know that they would be talking about him. Then Jason told her he was going to withdraw a few hundred dollars from an ATM before taking the black Chevy HHR. Now the Chevy Equinox that police had been searching for wasn't even out on the road. He returned home for a moment to switch weapons. It's believed his Glock 19 had actually malfunctioned, so he left it on his basement workbench and grabbed his Walter P99, which is also a 9mm pistol, with an extended magazine. Again, Jason activated his Uber app and continued to pick up Uber passengers. But now his car didn't match the make and model, verified on his uber account so he had to explain to all of his future passengers that his usual car he drove had broken down so he had to switch to the hhr for a bit and i guess this worked with passengers and they believed his story which i mean it's new why would it's new yeah it's like why would anyone lie about this who knows for the next several hours he didn't seem to have any more outbursts there were no more reported incidents until 10 p.m that night and that was when he came across the Smith family. The mother was named Lori, and the father was Rich, and they had two children named Tyler and Emily. Rich worked as a construction manager, and he was incredibly close to his 17-year-old son, Tyler, who was a soccer player at school and known for his carefree attitude. At the time, he was dating his first love and high school sweetheart, Alexis. His mother, Lori, said the couple had been inseparable, and that night was a special occasion. Rich, Tyler, and Alexis headed to Sealy Kia dealership, to look for a new truck for Tyler. Tyler loved off-roading, so he wanted something that he could take out on the trails near the Sleeping Bear sand dunes. Alexis waited in the car while Rich and Tyler checked out the options in the Kia parking lot. 
From a distance, Jason spotted them walking from across the street. So he proceeded to drive into the parking lot and park the car. He then grabbed his handgun, got out of the car, and started walking towards Tyler and Rich. He called out to them and asked what they were looking for. Before they could even respond, he shot at them 16 times. Alexis witnessed the shooting from inside the family's Range Rover, and for safety, she hid in the car until Jason left. And then she got out, ran over to Tyler, who was lying on the ground, and got his phone out of his pocket to call 911. Meanwhile, a witness also called 911 just before Alexis to report the shooting. And here's that audio. Hi, we just drove by the Kia. Um, what, what road are we on? A 94 business, um, and a guy just shot some people in the parking lot. Okay. Are you still are you still near the scene? Uh, yeah, we're at the Burger King, a couple okay. of places down. There's a car sitting in the lot. I can't tell. That's some kind of SUV. Okay. All right. Did you did you hear shots fired? Is that yeah? That's what made us look. And there were two guys laying on the ground, and one guy pointing a gun at them. All right. Hold on. I'm gonna. You're actually within Kalamazoo City's jurisdiction. I'm gonna transfer you over to them. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Just stay on the line. So tragically. When emergency services finally got there, both Tyler and Rich were pronounced dead at the scene. Part of me can't help but think that they were targeted because it was a father and a son together. And I go back to that phone call with his son, and I just, Mm. I have to wonder, was there something to that phone call that just triggered something with Jason? That's one of my biggest questions is, and I know Matt Mellon has talked about listening in on that conversation. He's like, I wasn't really listening in it. You know, you don't want to be rude. So he's probably just there and they're having a conversation. He's minding on his, his phone or, you know, kind of half yeah. listening. But man, I would, I would love to hear what that conversation was because I think that was something that was the triggering event was that phone call that set him off into this spree. So, yeah. I would love to know, and that's interesting you point that out. I never even considered that, the father and son dynamic here. Well, he's driving around, and I can't help but think he's, I mean, now he's bulletproof vest, weapon. He's on a mission now, and I can't help but think he's driving around, and he sees clearly a father and son at the car dealership, and you know they're having sharing this great memory together of getting a new vehicle, and he just wants to destroy that. He wants to annihilate that. And yeah. That's exactly what he does. In less than a half hour after the Kia dealership shooting, even more emergency phone calls came in, reporting another shooting at a local Cracker Barrel about five miles away from this dealership. And I can't even imagine working for emergency services in Kalamazoo, generally a safe town, as we were saying. Not much goes on. It's kind of a just a normal college town, you know, nice you to raise see a family. This, this lots of violence yeah. in this way. And then all of a sudden, this one day, you're getting multiple shots fired at multiple different locations with this erratic driver on the loose. I, I couldn't even imagine. But here is another emergency phone call from that Cracker Barrel. Kimsey County, 911. I'm at the um, Kalamazoo Cracker Barrel, and there's been gunshots in, in a car. There's gunshots in a car? Yes. Okay, well, has anybody been hit? Two cars have been shot up. There's three people in one car, and one guy is not moving. Do you have a vehicle? Where is the shots fired from? Dad, I got it. 
I got it. We are at Kalamazoo Cracker Barrel. Oh, we're, at, we're at Cracker Barrel. I got that. Where's the vehicle where they were shot from? They're both They're both in the, the parking lot. They're both in the parking lot? What's the vehicle yeah. that, sh- that fired the gun? It's a blue HHR, dark blue, and it drove off right as we pulled up. With the blue HHR? Yes. Do you have a plate or anything? Which way did they go? No, because right as we pulled up, he was pulling out, and he just um, he just took off out of the uh, entrance. All right, you said it was a blue HHR, correct? Yes. So apparently Jason had fired multiple shots into two cars that were in the parking lot. The victims were all friends and families who had recently seen this acrobatic show in Kalamazoo, and later that night they met up at the Cracker Barrel. Two of them were Mary Lou Nye and her sister-in-law, Mary Jo Nye. Mary Lou was a 62-year-old daycare worker at Emmanuel Lutheran Church's daycare center. Mary Jo was a 60-year-old retired teacher at Calhoun Community High School in Battle Creek. In her career, she had become the president of the Literacy Council of Calhoun County. Another victim, unfortunately, was Dorothy Brown, a 74-year-old woman who worked for Guardian Finance and Advocacy in Battle Creek. Another victim was Barbara Hawthorne. She was a 68-year-old grandmother who retired from the Kellogg Company in Battle Creek after 22 years. Jason apparently had approached the van where Mary Lou was sitting in the driver's seat. She was alone in the other car, and he opened fire. When the rest of the women in the adjacent car began screaming, he shot several more rounds into their vehicle. And after the emergency phone calls, police arrived and investigated the vehicles. It appeared that all of them were fatally wounded. Barbara was the only one that was still conscious and she could still barely speak with the officers. uh, Apparently she was even able to get up and walk away from the car. Then the officer noticed some movement though down toward the sedan's floors kind of near Barbara's feet. Turns out there was 14-year-old Abigail Kopp. She had been inside the sedan with the three other women during the shooting and she had taken a bullet to the head but was still alive. Barbara wasn't Abigail's biological grandmother but Abigail had always called her Grandma Barb. They were super close. And it was later discovered that Barbara actually pushed Abigail down to the floor to safety when the gunshot started. Unfortunately, Barbara did later pass away in the hospital from her wounds. But I guess the upside of the story is that even though Abigail had been shot in the head and suffered a fractured skull and brain trauma, she was able to make it to the hospital. Her parents met her there and she had to undergo several invasive surgeries. A few hours into her treatment, unfortunately, her vitals did begin to fail and the staff began CPR. Vicky, who is Abigail's mother, was basically at the point ready to just accept her daughter's fate. Doctors had even called Abigail's time of death officially, but as Vicky leaned over her daughter's body to grieve, she actually felt her daughter move. Abigail then even grabbed her mother's hand and squeezed, which is wild. Miracle, man. After Abigail's vitals returned, she still had to go through several more operations, and one of the surgeries involved removing a section of the frontal right lobe of her brain and also placing a metal plate in her head where the bullet shattered her skull. After all these surgeries, she was in a coma for several days, and her mother stayed by her side the entire time. And miraculously, Abigail 
ended up surviving. She spent six months in the hospital. It took her two months to learn how to walk, talk, and eat again. And after almost two years of treatment and rehab, Abigail was eventually able to return to school. That is just... What a survival story. That is just wild to me. I mean, the the perseverance and strength needed to, to get through something like that is unbelievable. I mean, she was pronounced dead yeah and she came back and is now back to living her life i mean it's incredible you don't hear that very often but that is that is amazing after the cracker barrel shooting jason continued to pick up passengers uber still unaware seemingly or not doing anything about the situation and according to those passengers he was seen acting like everything was fine and was even humming to the radio. Supposedly, one of his passengers jokingly asked if he was the serial shooter, and he would say no. And if there was any tension or awkwardness in the car, he would just say that he was tired. Meanwhile, police were pulling over as many HHRs as they could find, and they had reportedly pulled over around eight HHRs that night. Finally, at 12.39 a.m., they pulled over the correct HHR with Jason inside. At first, he just sat inside the vehicle, and police at this point were expecting a shootout with him or a suicide by cop situation, but he ended up listening to police orders, and they were able to get him out of the car without any altercations. They also found one of the murder weapons in his vehicle with him. He was immediately arrested and then brought in for questioning. We actually have some dash cam footage of his arrest. We'll play that now. That footage is kind of bizarre to me. Why is that? Well, first of all, you finally found the HHR that you're looking for, and you hear one of the officers saying that they're conducting a felony stop on Jason at this point. And I've I've watched a lot of police dash cam footage. You know, I was I even trained to be an officer back in the day. And based on what I know about felony stops, they did not conduct a felony stop here. So a felony stop would be, they don't approach the vehicle like that. They're going to actually order the individual out of the vehicle Mm. at gunpoint. Because A, you're dealing with somebody who just went on a shooting spree. So the chances of him turning and shooting an officer at this point is very, very high. And the fact that they're just very nonchalantly, like their, their guns are drawn, but they're 
exposing themselves to major danger here by walking up to the vehicle in the way that they are. And a felony stop would be they'd be at their vehicles, guns drawn, they'd have them in multiple directions, and they'd be, all right, step out of the vehicle, walk backwards to us, get down on your knees, and yeah, they would I've do it that, that way. Gotcha. Which would be better for them. Do you think that, because I know they did have kind of a back and forth for a while before they actually approached the car, but do you think it's because it's like, they knew there wasn't a threat. I know they told him to put his hands out of the vehicle and stuff like that. I assume that. because he did that, that they felt like he was compliant, but okay. I just feel like that was still very risky on their part. Cause I mean, yeah. at any point he could, he could open fire. And I mean, I guess their approach was decent, but I feel like that was a very risky yeah. move on their part rather than just ordering him out of the vehicle where you have plain sight of him. And if right. he does try anything, you're far enough away that you're not like, how do you, had that officer initially walking up to his door, he could have easily pulled it, pulled around and started right. shooting at him. True. It would have been wide open to that. We know he has a massive collection of firearms. He could have had, you know, whatever in that car. I think they only found one weapon, but that's also confusing where someone who just went through yeah. a shooting spree and when he, when they pull him out of the car, he's just so nonchalant and like chill. Yeah. And the officers are really chill too. I feel like in other situations like this, they'd be throwing his ass on the ground. Yeah, right. It'd be like high, high energy stop here, and everybody just seems very nonchalant to me. And I think part of that could just be they don't do this a lot, and so they're just you know they're it's just kind of a lack of experience, or maybe because he was complying with officers' orders and putting his hands out, they felt safe enough to do it that way. I just I just find it a bit bizarre because. I feel like any other department out there would have handled this with much more aggression. Yeah. After multiple shootings. After multiple, you're talking about a serial shooter who most likely, when you look at the statistics with people who go on serial shooting sprees, they often take their own life. Right. Or they suicide by cop. Or they just go out. I know they expected that going in, but yeah, the end of it, I guess maybe this is just like best case scenario at the end where everything was calm, but yeah. So after they get Jason into custody, they go and search his home where they found his large gun collection, including the other murder weapon, which was in the basement. They also found countless empty shell casings he used to make his own ammunition. In the house, he also had a bow and arrows, and there was also uh, airsoft guns, two loaded magazines near a TV remote, and socks in the living room. There were stray bullets and spent cartridges around the house and random drawers and underneath seat cushions, body armor musket balls and a box for firearm accessories that also had a children's third grade learning program in it so very interesting all across the house in the backyard police noticed multiple bullet holes in the fence near children's playground equipment apparently neighbors had complained of jason shooting guns in his yard for hours at a time which uh yeah definitely not allowed to do that in a residential area no. <laughs> for that very reason after arresting Jason, officers immediately thought it was strange that Jason was acting like this easygoing guy, even though he had just gunned down multiple people throughout the day. He was questioned by Detective Bill Morian and Detective Corey Gearingelli. At first, he wouldn't tell them much. He kept pleading the fifth and refused to talk about the murders. Allegedly, asked for a lawyer at some point, but wasn't given one. But the longer they kept him in the interrogation room, the more he started opening up to their questions. He then mentioned the murder of Mary Lou the first woman he killed in the Cracker Barrel parking lot. He admitted that he had approached her while she was in the car and asked for a dollar to spare to, quote, make America great again. She declined and then shot her and the others. He ultimately admitted to all the shootings when he finally explained how he shot his victims. 
He had this to say. I'm not a killer. And this is what I'm, I, and I, I, and I know that I have killed. I know that you guys are going to have a hard time believing this, but it literally took over mind and body. The Uber app? It lets you read when I first started. Okay. I switched from red to black. Okay. And it's in that in that black mode. Yeah. It literally has control of. Okay. I'm sure the off the officers are like, What what are you talking about, dude? And there's a there's debate on if he actually believes this or yeah. if this is him trying to set up this insanity. Planting plea. the seeds for mm-hmm. that, yeah. But here's some more context for you. Did you bring my phone up to me so I could see it? I know the Uber thing on here. Can I see it, please? On Uber, I, when I clicked it, it went, and then it was like a double head that popped up. And I pressed that button. And that's where all the problems went after. I had experienced the full body takeover. It literally has control of I would have never done any of these atrocities that have happened. What made you get your firearm tonight? The app? The Uber? Wait, what made you put the vest on to? You remember shooting people? There's like little spots where it pipes in. Yeah, they're like, so the app made you then go home and get your bulletproof vest and a firearm? Come on. Also, we know that it's just so weird. He had been halfway through that ride with Matt Mellon and then he kind of snapped or whatever you want to call it but he seemed you know to Matt he explains he's like he was seemingly a normal trip up until all of a sudden that phone call with his son and then so but he's trying to blame it on the app but that a devil head pops up right come on dude clearly there's a lot more going on though when he opened the app this is what he claims he saw what he thought was the Eastern Star, which is a symbol that's you know connected to the Freemasons, and he also saw a devil head. One thing I just wanted to mention, if you're a little confused about the Eastern Star, so if you if you look at what the Eastern Star is, it is a a symbol uh, that the Freemasons use, but the actual shape of this symbol is an inverted pentagram. Right. So, yeah, it's weird that. He's referring it. I mean, it's clear he's looked at Freemason conspiracies and Illuminati conspiracies and, you know, devil worshipers and all that kind of stuff. So he's, it's where they wouldn't just say it's a satanic symbol or something like that. It's Mm -hmm. where that he goes to like Eastern star. But if you're not familiar with that symbol, it is the, the shape of a inverted pentagram. I don't even know what theory he's really even running with, but. On February 22nd, 2016, they charged Jason with 18 counts, including six counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and eight felony firearms charges. He was held without bail. According to prosecutors, Jason was a married father with two children. He had, you know, no apparent known issues at home. He had no emotional troubles, no known financial troubles. He had no police record or anything in his background that stuck out. He wasn't overly political, religious. He wasn't known to be into any deep conspiracy theories. And there was no evidence that he was ever into any extremist ideologies. So 
It was hard to understand how all of a sudden he was just capable of doing something like this. And the big question is, which unfortunately, spoiler alert, I don't know if we'll ever get any solid answer to what his motives were. That's the big question mark here. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, if you if you had to put together what's going on up until now, what would you guess? This is hard because we just don't know the extent of the evidence in regards to his extremist beliefs. If I had to guess, just speculate, my opinion would be there's probably more there than what we even know and the authorities have downplayed it or just not released that information to us. I mean, it seems to me there's that goes a lot deeper than what we know or perhaps as we found especially in the past uh the authorities just don't have that much knowledge around these conspiracy theories or don't really understand it to the extent that they understand it today right especially with all of the events that have transpired since then uh when it comes to these types of conspiracy theories so if i had to guess he was probably deeper down that rabbit hole than they led us to believe or just weren't willing to release okay um and i do think that that clearly had some effect on him whether it was the the lone motive for doing this i can't say obviously but i do think that that may have had some type of effect on his mind state and potentially even the one of the reasons to possess so many firearms and again it's you know it's i'm careful when saying that because it, it a lot of people get upset and think i'm generalizing all people have a lot of firearms i'm not i'm just saying that there are some people who you know become very paranoid when they go down the conspiracy rabbit hole and you know they end up owning a lot of firearms as a result of their beliefs in in those conspiracies but again there's plenty of people who possess a lot of firearms completely normal people no issues Right. right but i do think in this particular case with jason you think it was more paranoia? I think there's major picture. paranoia there, yeah. and I don't think he just got these ideas out of thin like, air. randomly out of thin air. I mean, yeah. the fact he's referencing Eastern Star Freemasons to me—that's a big indicator that he's been delving into conspiracy theories. And for all we know, maybe he just they just weren't able to find the evidence to to back that up. But right. there probably is more there. Yeah, I think I think it has something to do with pop possibly his i don't know unknown family issues at play yes. here because i always fall back on that phone call which is when he snapped what is going on there with the relationship with his son what's his life at home like we don't know there's more to the story there yeah and also you know obviously mental illness is possibly well, we don't know a, there as well yeah so but the fact that he goes to a cracker barrel a family establishment mm. Yeah, to me seems targeted. Seems to me that he was on the look for, for families specific. to destroy yeah. that night, and so he happened to drive past one at the dealership, and then he thought, "Well, where's a place that a lot of families go to? Cracker Barrel." Yeah, and to tie into that theory, I mean, he did come across Tiana, who was with a bunch with of a bunch children. of kids. Yeah, so I just kind of think it does go back to his family situation. There's more there that we don't know. Yeah, and something happened, or there's some history there yeah his defense attorneys requested a psychological evaluation to see if he was competent to stay in trial and he was sent to the michigan center for forensic psychiatry 
So this, just to be clear, this was not to determine if he would plead insanity or if he was insane. This was just to see if he understood the charges against him and could assist in his own defense. The process was planned to take about 60 days and his trial would be set for later that year. By April, he was declared fit for trial. His first victim, Tiana, who survived, later testified in court in May during a preliminary hearing and she answered a few questions, but all of a sudden Jason began to interrupt. He started making bizarre comments and he was later dragged from the courtroom. Here's a- Oh, let's see this. Yeah, here's a clip of this. You know, I, I um, saw it. It's gonna be in cars. No, they gave bags, these old people, they had these old Nothing. black bags that are called, it, it, they're black, there's black bags that people drive around and look at them. It gets real, it's like, hey, it's time people look. And then that's what to tell people it's time to get to temple. You need to listen to your attorney, right? Yeah, you need to get to temple because you need to get going because it's the county symphony. You need to be quiet in today's proceedings, okay? Yeah. If you have anything to say, you whisper to your attorney. That's today's rules, okay? Get his ass out of there. Yep. Scumbag. This is a, can't help but think this is all for show here. Yeah, right. And why he can't walk. I don't know. So yeah, that's possibly just more planting the seeds of uh, trying to get the insanity. Well, yeah. Or on the flip side, it could be some sort of mental health issue. But again, he's right. being psychologically evaluated and they're not yeah. at least reporting anything. Yeah, he was competent to stand trial. So several defense motions were later filed, which caused the trial to be delayed. This would be delayed for quite a bit. The defense wanted none of the police interviews with Dalton to be used in the trial. Apparently, at the first interview, Jason had told police he did not want to speak with them, and he supposedly requested an attorney, but wasn't given one. Prosecutors argued that the first interview continued because police were still trying to determine if there were more victims that needed immediate attention, but I don't know why you would uh, violate someone's Miranda rights for that exactly. It doesn't make sense. But supposedly, Jason also didn't want to talk during the second interview. But after drinking a soft drink and talking about God and pet dogs, they just greased him up and he agreed to more questions. The court later ruled that only a portion of the first interview could be used in court and all of the second one was permissible. But Another motion was filed by the defense. Again, they claim that detectives violated Jason's Miranda rights. The Michigan Court of Appeals later decided that neither of the interviews would be allowed at trial because of these motions. His trial was delayed until 2019. So based off of that, it does seem like the detectives definitely messed up here. Yeah. By not stopping the questioning at that point when he requested an attorney. And then it's also interesting that he did request an attorney because I think that shows evidence of competency, at least yeah. in that moment. He's, he knew what was going on. He knows on. what's going on. I'm being yeah. questioned, and I should probably not answer any of these questions. So right. there's that. But it's not like they didn't have enough evidence outside. Yeah, of I mean, I, don't, I mean, the interviews doesn't is kind of irrelevant because, I mean, they found the murder weapons. They located him in the vehicle he was seen shooting in. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of a, open and shut case for them yeah 
The prosecution and the defense expected to start questioning 12 potential jurors before the trial. The strongest evidence of premeditation was that Jason was wearing a bulletproof vest, had switched cars and firearms, and he had told his wife that he would be on the news that night. The mandatory sentencing for first-degree murder in Michigan is life without parole. So to avoid this, Jason was still considering an insanity plea. While in jail, Jason's phone calls were recorded, and on January 6, 2019, he was heard talking to his mother. He said they wanted to film it, quote, like the OJ trial, and he said he felt like a, quote, dancing monkey in a circus ring. During the call, his mother urged him to plead guilty, and on January 7, 2019, that's exactly what he did. Jason pled guilty to all the charges against him. His defense attorney said he made the sudden decision for personal reasons so that his family and the families of the victims wouldn't have to go through a trial. But it was also revealed that his defense attorney previously told him that the insanity plea was not an option. A forensic evaluation found that Jason didn't meet the legal definition of being insane. Immediately after, Jason decided to plead guilty, which kind of put two and two together. Isn't yeah. Oh, well, and people think that if I plead insanity, it's somehow better for me. And, and that's clearly what he thought, but that didn't work out. So he's like, well, the next best option is to just plead guilty at this point. Yep. The next day, he called his mother and told her it was over. He also called an unknown woman and almost explained why he did what he did. We actually have that audio. Let's listen to that. It's, it's over. I stopped this circus train. I didn't want to, to agree to being premeditated because that day, I did not set out that day to premeditate to do anything like that at all. Hmm. Do you believe him? No, not for a second. I don't think anyone straps on a vest and gets a firearm and and switches cars and talks to your wife about committing something. I don't even if like on. that morning he didn't necessarily like premeditate the entire day's events. Sure. At some point he made a conscious decision and seems like it was after that phone call with his son that I'm now gonna put this plan into motion and yes he clearly was somewhat prepared for what he was going to do yeah i have a hard time feeling like it was all random and he just randomly decided to go home get the bulletproof vest. like what was the bulletproof vest for that's my question is like are you it's almost like he was planning to eventually get into a shootout with with somebody or police and there was some type of end to this plan for him yeah and maybe he just decided against it maybe decided well i actually do want to live so i'm not going to do this right by the i don't know all. yeah that's i mean yeah there's no doubt in my mind no one puts on a bulletproof vest without expecting violence right on february 5th 2019 jason dalton was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole He's currently being held in a medium security prison at Oaks Correctional Facility in Manistee, Michigan. In 2021, Matt Mellon, Jason's first passenger that day, filed a lawsuit against Uber for not having the emergency support they claimed they had on their website. He believes some of the victims could have been saved if he had been able to contact Uber, and they could have deactivated Jason's driver account before he went on this killing spree. At one point, Matt was seeking up to $1.2 million, and in April 2023, actually, Uber reached a settlement with an undisclosed amount of money. And not long after the shootings, Uber added 24-7 phone support for emergencies. And now they have the, the button in the app that you can just press. And I mean, it's much better than it was, but yeah, way safer now. 
but man. very scary. Yeah. And, uh, I think just some failures on uh, a few different fronts, but you know, obviously hindsight 2020, but I don't know. I feel like way more could have been done to prevent some of these. Shame on Uber, man. Yeah. They, they could have prevented all of this from happening. Had they just had the emergency support available in a very easy way. So yeah, it's a, it's a tragic, tragic case. I guess, you know, the, the one positive is those victims that, that survived and yeah, there's, you know, it's now easy to get emergency support, which I've never used it. So I can't even say firsthand how good it actually is. You know, right. is, is it actually work? True. I, I have no idea. I would hope so. I would hope it would at least be a deterrent for people who are Uber drivers who are considering committing yeah. crimes that they know that on the other end of that app, there is some emergency services there. Yeah. I'm curious if any of you out there have had to use the emergency support option on Uber before have had any issues or experiences with, with Uber drivers where, you know, something, something happened and you had to report them and what that experience was like. Cause I'm sure there's, I, mean, I know there's tons of stories out there of still to this day of Uber drivers, uh, doing horrible things, committing crimes and, and worse. But I'm curious if any of you have had a personal experience, if you'd care to share, I'd be interested to, to hear about that. But it's important to just be vigilant though. Cause at the end of the day, you are getting into a vehicle with a stranger. True. You're trusting, you're putting your trust in Uber that they vetted this individual and you don't know what to, to what extent. It's not like you get to see their record or see what Uber knows about this particular driver. Right. So I think in any situation with any ride sharing service or taxi, I think it's just always good to be. Have your wits about yeah, you. Yeah. Just, you know, make sure you're going where, you know, sometimes I, in the past I've like, double checked like the route to make sure like so sometimes they take their own route sometimes and i'm like uh, don't, mm-hmm. why are you going this way like yeah. why are you taking me out this way like because you just never know i mean there's like jason he had a number of positive rides he had positive ratings it's like just because they're a highly rated driver it doesn't stop somebody from having a bad day or, or just snapping yeah and, and something happening so i think just just being aware of of where you're at who you're with and having i think being on your phone is good during during rides i think most of us do get on our phones and look at our phones and just you know be ready to you know contact the authorities or or report this driver to uber if something ever goes wrong so for sure but i think best to be safe out there for sure yeah and also not to be that guy but also understand that cases like these are extremely rare this is a circumstance that is yeah you don't necessarily live in fear of something like this happening but i don't know i tend to just err on the side of just always be prepared for the worst yeah Uh, and it's hard to to live that way because it's easy to be you know kind of you don't want to live your life in fear of but it's just like i feel like you have to have this mindset especially nowadays like anything could pop off like i I went to two malls over my trip and i cannot stop myself from thinking about what happens if somebody comes in here and decides to to go on a on a shooting spree and that that thought is constantly in my mind in in most public places i go to now and i'm just hyper vigilant looking around i'm i'm always being aware of like where my exits are like even when i go into stores i'm like if something happens my mind was going to i'm going to go 
into the back out the doors yeah where's the fire yeah escape? I'm, I'm trying yeah. to figure out a plan of escape and i just it sucks that that's the reality of our our society at this point but i feel like it's just i don't know it makes me feel better now that i have a child like it, right, i right. feel this extra sense of like i have to protect my my family at all costs so what mm-hmm. am i going to do and you know it's just i think there's a there's a healthy realm between paranoia and awareness mm-hmm. so as long as you're not getting into like you're just paranoid of like this is this is gonna happen well i think you know, if you're it's... paranoid you're not even going to those places right true you're just staying home you're just yeah, staying home absolutely. so those that just don't even go to the places i think that's where in in you know in your eyes might be more paranoia because i mean I, i'm not gonna stop myself from living my life and i know that Same. statistically the chances of that happening super are rare. super slim yeah but i can't help but just that thought crosses my mind at this point and it's something that i just am like you know it's not going to happen today but i'm just going to make sure that i know you know i'm not oblivious to what's I was happening just going to use that yeah oblivion i think is just if you're oblivious to these things that's a problem if you're also hypersensitive and paranoid about it that's also a problem in my eyes but yeah so it's hard being aware though knowing where fire escapes are i don't think that's being overly cautious i think everyone should know those things like that or what to do in certain situations i think that's just preparedness yeah because i I think when what you start realizing is that anything can happen at any point anywhere anywhere it doesn't matter like where you are like obviously big big public places like that are the statistics are you know probabilities a little higher maybe but right anything could happen anywhere so it's like you can't just be like i'm not gonna go anywhere because i'm scared something's gonna happen but yeah my cousin won't go to movie theaters anymore. yeah yeah and it took me a long time to to go to movie theaters too because i was i mean that aurora aurora hit so close to home for me and i was just like that's it's crazy to me yeah but yeah i mean that's it's really the only other takeaway i can take away from this is just awareness and yeah you know stay aware stay safe stay safe stay safe and be ready for anything i guess but we're gonna end this episode the only way that i feel is is appropriate and and that's to hear from those impacted by this this tragic tragic crime committed by by jason and and as always you know our thoughts are are with the the victims and families um affected by by this and so we're going to end this episode with hearing uh, some of the family's impact statements from court. Uh, but with that, we'll, we'll catch you guys next week. I've cried a billion tears. Oh, how my gears turn. Oh, how my, oh, how my tears. Now my gears turn thinking, why would you hurt me? I pause, replay, and relive every single moment. Pause, play, rewind, slow, fast. I just can't keep living in the past. I am physically and mentally overwhelmed and exhausted from trying to process both losses at the same time, keeping up with the demands of my daily life and somehow learning to live without them. I am not myself anymore. I always feel alone and destroyed despite having endless supportive love and family and friends and a community as a whole. I have no expectations or dreams anymore. 
Ever since that night, every family gathering, event, and experience in my life is painful, as I now have to plan for how to memorialize them not being there instead of feeling the joy and happiness of our family experiencing it together. Any joy that I do feel is always overshadowed by sadness. All because of your choices.